Let's pray together. Eternal God of heaven and earth, amazing Father, beautiful Savior, Holy Spirit, we come this morning incapable of worship that's pleasing and acceptable to you on our own. And so we ask that as we come into this place, this house of worship, with the anxiety and burdens of the world clinging to us, that you would help us to drop those things, that we would forget about them. For the next hour, two hours, God, that you would help us just to rest in the, the shadow and shelter of your wings, that you would just shower us with your love and your protection and your mercies that are new every day. All of the obstacles that are going to hinder us from worshiping you, God, this morning, I pray that you'd steal all those things away that the enemy tries to put in front of us to distract us from just absolute adoration of who you are. We love you, God. Be present this morning. Be present in your word preached. Be present in our hearts. Help us to receive it. Help it to be cultivated and to be fertilized. And help it to produce a crop a hundred times that which is sown. And that all of those things would go towards our mission as a church to pursue, win, disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for your glory. And that it would go towards your ultimate mission, God, of redeeming humanity. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I was sharing with Christine this morning that, uh, and I've shared this with y'all in the weeks past, that preaching from Ecclesiastes has been a much more difficult task for me as a pastor than I ever anticipated. Uh, the challenges there, if, if you go out as a pastor and you want to preach on something from the Gospels, there's plenty of there's plenty of material to glean from you can go to Mardell's or Christian bookstore Amazon and you can find oodles and oodles and stacks and stacks of information explaining everything there are sermons that are written I'm not the kind of person that looks at other people's sermons I spend time with God but there are some people who are out there and it's like they like to know that you know I'm online or they want to use a framework or a structure that's already laid out and you can find a lot of that stuff, but if you go looking for it for Ecclesiastes, it's not there. And so I've been flying, I wouldn't say solo, because God is not my co-pilot, he's a pilot, and I've been sitting in that passenger seat, which is where I belong. But as the pastor of this church, and I really felt like coming into a church in my new pastor, one of the things that is one of our core values as a church, if you were present here and you were walking with us through that series, one of our core values is wisdom. And the reason why wisdom is such an essential core value, not just for our church, but for every church, is that a church without wisdom is doomed. A church without wisdom is absolutely doomed. And in all the years of my ministry, as I looked out and I walked along and I saw things that were going on in churches, and I would pray to God and I'd say, God, if you ever choose to bless me with leading a church as a pastor, one of the first things that I'm going to do is I'm going to take our church through Proverbs and the wisdom literature and just beg and pray that you would speak to the congregation about your wisdom. I felt like I was kind of prepared for Proverbs. I wasn't prepared for Ecclesiastes because it's tough. It's difficult. And so this morning, before we get to our focal text, I would ask you in your Bibles if you have one with you or you could pull one out of the back of the pew, is we're going to turn actually to Proverbs chapter 1. I'd ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 1. And we don't need to stand... 
But I'd ask you to follow along with me. I'm going to give you another minute or so to get there. I asked John not to record today's sermon because I shared with our leadership team is that there's a certain amount of uh, production burden and stress and anxiety that falls on me as your pastor when I know the camera's rolling. Is that I can't just stop for a second and say, hey guys, turn. It's like there's a certain level of like, we got to keep this thing going. And so today I said, I just want a break from doing the video. I just want a break because I just want to get real with y'all as my congregation. Is that okay that we do that this morning? So Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to start off with verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. Now, I want you to underline that right there, city gates, because we're going to come back to that if you're an underlining, highlighting person. How long, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? This is what wisdom is calling out. How long will you mockers enjoy mocking, and you fools hate knowledge? If you turn to my discipline, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my word. Since I called out, and you refused. Extended my hand, and no one paid attention. Since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction, I, wisdom in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when terror strikes. When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you. Then they will call me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me, because they hated knowledge. They didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected all my correction. They will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the waywardness of the inexperienced will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and be free from fear and danger. That's Proverbs chapter 1, 20 through 33. There's some harsh stuff in there. There's some harsh stuff in there. So this morning as we go through this, I want us to look at, this is our focal text, our main verse for today. And this is from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Your verse, your translation may look a little bit different in your Bible. It says, The toil of fools weary them, for they do not know how to go to the city. As I was preparing this week, and as I kind of, the prelude or the leading into the sermon for this morning, is saying that there's not a lot of, there's not a, a lot of stuff that's out there on Ecclesiastes. And so when I looked into these, some of the commentaries that are online and my commentaries that I have from my days in seminary, and I looked through them, and I noticed this, that when I first became a Christian, and I, buy a, I bought the NIV study Bible from Costco, and I wasn't really sure that that was okay, because I was raised Catholic, and you don't just go to... You know, you don't just go to Costco and buy a Bible. You know, this is something that's got to be blessed, you know, by somebody that's at least an archbishop or higher. It's got to have some holy water sprinkled on it. And it's like the idea of going into Costco where I'm going to buy a frozen pizza and then a couple aisles over that there's a Bible that hasn't been blessed by anybody that just came off of a press. I really didn't know if that was okay. And so I literally, this isn't me just making up a story, I literally stood there with my box, my Bible in the NIV box that said the NIV study Bible, and I'm holding it, and I'm looking up to God, and I say, God, if I'm about to sin against you by buying a Bible in Costco, no, no I'm not saying this out loud, 
I'm saying it inside. So if y'all are thinking I'm standing there in Costco, God, please, if I'm about to sin against you and everyone runs off and there's nobody on that aisle anymore because they don't want to be anywhere near this guy because he's either crazy or what he's asking for is going to happen. He's going to get struck by lightning for buying a Bible from Costco. But what I noticed was that when I got home over the next several months, that when I was reading through my study Bible, all the stuff that I really had difficulty with and I go down to the bottom, there weren't any answers. The verses that were in between, they've got some good stuff on verse 1, 2, and 3. My question is on verse 4 and there's nothing there. And then they jump to verse number 5. That's like Ecclesiastes. Is that there's all these people who got really good things to say about the superficial stuff. Even the seminary professors who are writing books and commentaries and all this stuff, is that, but when you go in and you look at stuff in Ecclesiastes, see, because nobody wants to be the fool that actually takes a stand on Ecclesiastes and says, this is what it means. And then somebody's going to come back and go, that's not what that means. That fool over there at DTS, that professor, has no idea what he's talking about. So you kind of get out there on a limb. So I'm going through Ecclesiastes 9 and 10 and probably the two most challenging chapters that we've had thus far, at least for me, in our study and our series on Ecclesiastes. And I'm reading through it and I'm reading through it and I'm going through 9 and I'm going through 10 and I'm knowing that it's, I got to come up with something for a sermon for Sunday. Because I don't know if y'all have noticed this or not, but every Sunday, regardless of the weather, regardless of what game is on TV, regardless of what movies came on, regardless of what's on your DVR or not on your DVR, I'm standing right here and I'm preaching the word. Every Sunday, and it's a privilege. I'm not saying that like y'all look at me and it's like, you know, he's up there kind of like asking for, you know, come on, give me some, give me some praise. I'm not. I'm just saying that the steadfastness and the privilege that I have as your pastor to stand in this pulpit every week, I do not take for granted. But it is a huge responsibility to come before people and to say at the end of it, thus saith the Lord. And to be preaching from Ecclesiastes and have the conviction to be say, thus saith the Lord, and you're kind of out there. Look, he just stepped out from behind the pulpit for the first time ever. Stepping out there a little bit and getting on an island is it's a little bit scary. It's a little scary. So this morning or this week as I was going through, I even shared this with Christine. For some reason, this verse kept popping up, popping up. Do y'all realize I'm a little off the cuff because we're not, we're not filming this morning, so I haven't even really gotten into all my slides yet. But it's like the sermon from last week, do y'all remember what it was about? Somebody help me out. What was it about? Joy in the big picture. Joy in the big picture, right? That when adversity in life comes, what's our tendency? What's our knee-jerk response? What do we do? What do we do? I'm asking. We're not on film. You guys can say it. We're not being videoed. Woe is me, Lord! Why is my battery on my car out? Why do I have a hangnail, Lord? Why did the baby throw up this morning? Why did I run out of diapers? Why this? Why that? Woe is me, and we complain. And what we looked at last week and what scripture hopefully instructed you but absolutely instructed us is that that's part of God's plan. Adversity. It's woven into the fabric of this fallen world for our benefit. And I kept coming to this verse, the toil of fools weary them. And I said, God, I'm weary. And I guess that means I'm a fool this week. And God said, yep, that's exactly what that means. And you get to go up and you get to preach that. You are a fool because you're weary and you haven't rested in me. Is it when you allow the burden of pastoring a church to weigh so heavily on you? When you allow the burdens of life to weigh so heavily on you? And as I shared with these little kids, that the first thing that you do is it to call out to God and not grumbling, not saying, woe's me, Lord, why did you call me to this little church out in the middle of nowhere 
Why did you call me? And God says, I didn't say that, by the way. I'm saying, if we were to say that, and God would have pulled me back, and he would have reeled me in, and he would have said, Kevin, do you remember? Do you remember after you accepted that call, even before then, when you would drive into Poetry Baptist Church, and you would look out, and you would see the cows, and you would say, what a beautiful drive. Have you forgotten to be thankful? Have you stopped looking out and saying, oh my goodness, Lord, if you were to call me to this church, what a privilege and what a blessing. And I haven't forgotten, but I allowed some of the weary and the burden to fall on my shoulders. And for that, I'm sorry. So as we looked at last week, we said that God is the one who weaves this into our lives, this adversity. And we said from Ecclesiastes 7.14, it's so that man, humanity, cannot discover anything without him. That's the reason why God allows us to experience adversity. Have y'all ever experienced adversity in your life? Any, anyone in here? Raise your hand. This isn't, this isn't a hypothetical. Raise your hand. Okay, only 50% of the people in here. Well, the rest of you go back to that passage from Proverbs that we just read. Wisdom is calling out from the city, calling out from the gates. Listen to me. Are you listening? And so how do we respond? How do we respond? I shared a slide with y'all last week and I didn't want to put 50 slides up there. That our expectations expose our entitlement, right? So our expectations for this life, I'm not saying that our expectations for what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, not the eschatology, I threw that word out there last week and uh, somebody pointed out the fact that it's like, Kevin, we're not all scholars. We don't know what eschatology is and I'm sorry. I do that sometimes because I'm human. So sometimes I'll throw stuff out there and I don't even necessarily think about it. I'm not trying to impress y'all with my big words. I'm just saying it because it's a word that I know. And I said it, eschatology, it's the last things. The eschaton in Greek is the stuff that comes at the end. If your eschatology, if your picture of what's happening at the end, your idea about the future, when Christ comes again, when the rapture happens, when he comes to bring us all home with him, when he establishes his millennial kingdom, when he does that, a literal thousand-year reign, and we're not going to get into that right now, is that what are our expectations between now and then? And I think, and I feel pretty confident saying this, otherwise I wouldn't say it from up here. I feel pretty confident saying this, is that in reality, our expectations are for order. We want order, right? We want autonomy. And if you're a person who's sitting there right now going, that doesn't apply to me, I don't want autonomy. <laughs> How about, think about it this way, if the pastor of your church were to say, hey, let's sit down and let's review your taxes from last year and let's see whether or not your contributions are lining up with 10% minimum of what it is that you're... And then you say, well, that's not really what... Oh, 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 let's start to juggle with that. Let's start to do some gymnastics. And I'm not even saying that that's what I'm going to do. I'm not saying as a church that... I'm just saying that when we say autonomy, is that we want autonomy in the stuff that we want to be autonomous about. You can say, I don't want to be autonomous when it comes to A, B, C, D, E, maybe all the way up to X, Y, but then we don't want accountability when it comes to item Z. I want to be able to hold that in my pocket. I want to be able to say, you know what, pastor, you and the church don't have any right. You don't have any authority to come into my life about this. Oh, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not saying I will. But when you go in here and you look at what it is to be the New Testament church, y'all remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? <gasps> oh, uh, 
I don't. Wait a second, Holy Spirit, you're kind of pushing on an area that I wasn't really ready to grapple with. Retribution. Retribution not in the sense of vengeance, but retribution in the sense that we want things to be equitable. In the ancient Near East, I go throw it out one of those seminary terms, is that back in the day of Israel, back in the olden days, when King David and the Jews were walking around in the, you know, they're walking around that area that was Mesopotamia and that whole area, that part of the world, is that the ancient Near East, when those guys were down there between Egypt and Mesopotamia in the Promised Land, their view of the world is that there was going to be a certain level of order in things. And that if you did something that you could expect that the equation was going to balance itself out. That if I do something good, then good things are going to happen. I can even go into Deuteronomy and I can say, well, that's what the Bible says. And we lear we've learned, we've taught ourselves to kind of pervert that retribution idea into expecting it to the point where it's like, if I do right stuff, that's why prosperity gospel is so attractive to the world. Do y'all get that? They sit there and they go, it's a biblical concept. If I do the right things, God is going to bless my socks off. <clears throat> He's not necessarily held to any sense of accountability in terms of like, if you do this, then God, you got to do that. He doesn't. You could do everything right. You could do all the tithing, all the praying, and then guess what? The next thing you know, your dad might have lung cancer. And then you turn and you shake your fist and you say, woe's me. God, you're either not there or you're impotent. Either case, you don't deserve my worship. And God's standing up there and he says, oh, but I wove that adversity into your life, Kevin, so that you could realize that you can't do anything without me. Not a single thing. I hope y'all are tracking with me because we're going somewhere. Order is no substitute for obedience. Y'all realize that? See, in the ancient Near Eastern world, they had an idea about order for everything. Politics. Politics is supposed to provide us for order with government. The etiquette is supposed to provide us order in our relationships. Hey, 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 don't stand that close to me. Here in North America, we don't get up in somebody's face. Go on a mission trip to some other countries where men hug you, where men want to hold your hand, and they want to walk with you. And you sit there and you're like, hey, bro, what's up with that? Don't touch me. You've just burned a, you've burned a bridge. You've severed a relationship. And now you don't have the opportunity to serve. Uh, we got Sue and Will coming in, so I don't know if they need some help. So if somebody wants to go back there and see if they need some help. See, I can't do that if we're filming. Order is no substitute for obedience. Every area of their lives and their worship, the idea was is that there has to be order in things. And if there's order, if chaos, if adversity starts to come in my life, the reality is, is I must be doing something wrong. That's why in the New Testament, the disciples are asking Jesus, well, why, why is that guy blind? Was it because of his sin or was it the sin of his parents? Who did something wrong that, that made that guy deserve to be born blind? Because you deserve it if you got problems. You realize that, Linda? You deserve it. No! You don't deserve it, except in the sense that we live in a broken world. And if you look over at Lessa and you say, I'm doing the exact same stuff that Lessa's doing, and she's over here, and man, everything in her life is working out great. Everything's wonderful. God, why is it that you're doing this to me? Why are you bringing the wrath down upon me? And then we grumble. Do y'all remember Israel in the Old Testament? What would happen every time they would grumble? Did it fix things? No, it never did. Is that God wanted to instruct us. And we want to think that because of this retribution theory, that everything should be equitable, that everything should be fair, right? Isn't that a word we throw out there all the time? But it's just not fair. Connor, it's not fair, right? When Papa says, I got to go to bed, or Papa tells me that I got to turn off my tablet, it's not fair, right? Is it? He's sitting there going, man, put me on the spot. I'm just messing with you, man. Relax. So I knew that. Order's no substitute for obedience. 
Autonomy undermines authority and rejects accountability. I want y'all to kind of marinate on these for a second because I've been working on this all week, all week long, and it's spending time with God and digging through this and the things that God instructed me in my heart that said, stand up in that pulpit and this is what I want you to share with that congregation. Autonomy undermines authority and rejects accountability. So what area of your life do you feel like, hey, it's okay if I'm autonomous in this area? It's okay for me to be autonomous, whether it's my finances, whether it's my prayer time, whether it's as a teenager, the way I dress. Mom and dad, you shouldn't be able to tell me what I should wear. Mom and dad, you shouldn't tell me what time I should go to bed. See, it starts as little kids and then it grows and it grows and then we get older and we say, oh, because we're Christians, right? And we're walking in the spirit that it's like that autonomy thing doesn't exist in my life. Really? Really? There's no area of your life in which you feel like you're entitled to some autonomy? And I'm not saying that we get on Facebook and we share every dimension and aspect of our lives publicly. That's what we call oversharing, right? Don't overshare. See, because Ecclesiastes 3 told us that there's a time and a season for everything. There's a place for it, and the place for it may be when you're sitting with your pastor one-on-one -on -one and you're praying together, and you say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me because there's an area of my life. That doesn't mean that you need to put it out there on Facebook and social media. It's like what we call a humble brag. Don't humble brag. Justice is pending. See, I threw out that word earlier, eschatology, the eschaton, the last things, is that God's going to make everything right. That idea of retribution and justice is coming at the judgment. He's going to make everything right. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's just no infinite amount of time that you have to finally get things right and to figure it out on your own. Because if you're not going to get it right now, you're not going to get it right then. You could have a thousand eternities sitting in limbo on your own and you're never going to figure it out. So you've got a decision to make right now today if you haven't already made it. You've got a decision to make. Is Christ going to be the Lord of my life? Am I going to surrender every aspect, every dimension to him? I'm going to make that an intentional, willful decision in my life because the Holy Spirit is preempting that and working in my life and even making it possible for me to be able to come to that decision to do it. Otherwise, I'd have something to boast about, right? I could be like Lee Strobel and I could sit down and I could say, I sat down and I kind of weighed all the evidence, right? I weighed all the evidence and I put all the pros on this side of the scale for believing in God and I put all the cons and I put it all up there and the pros far outweighed the cons. So me, Lee Strobel, I made the decision that it's like, well, it's logical then for me to choose to follow Christ. Guess what happened before that? The Holy Spirit was working in his life. And the whole time Lee Strobel was sitting there and he's looking and he's weighing the evidence and he's sitting here and he's facing and he's turned in rebellion against God because God's over here and he's got his back to him. And the whole time he's sitting there and he's weighing and he's sorting and he's doing his investigative stuff, he's on this little swivel stool. And God's turning him around. He thinks, man, I'm doing all this work. I'm figuring things out. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm going to weigh all the evidence. And then the next thing I know, I put it up on the scales and it goes, clachunk. There's a reason to believe in God. It's because God is standing right in front of me. And he turned me around and he allowed me to come to a place where I recognize him for who he is. He is the God Almighty, the Lord of eternity. Justice is pending. We're not going to get it today. It's not going to come from government. Connor's covering his ears. I'm talking too loud. I'm getting fired up, buddy. I'm sorry. Is it, It's not going to happen today. And if that's what your expectation is, is that our expectation exposes our entitlement. It's coming. We said this many times that as we were going through our core values series, and if you weren't here for that, 
we have our core values sermon series available on our website and it's also available online is that if you're look if you're thinking about becoming a member of this church and we've got some new families and we've got some visitors that are coming and you haven't listened to our core value series is you need to do that is you need to sit down because our core values tell you what it is that we believe as a church yes we believe in this we can go through our biblical uh, doctrines, if you will, the things that we believe that God is Trinity, that humanity has sinned against God. We can go through all of those, there are hermarchiology and our soteriology and all these other ologies. Absolutely. But as a church, our core values, what is it that we believe in as a people, as a people of God, as a church family? What is it that we believe in? And there are things like desperate dependency and wisdom and ministry empowerment and expectancy. And see our beliefs manifest as behaviors. Well, what, do I, what does all this have to do with this? The idea that our scripture verse, this isn't the one, but from earlier of Ecclesiastes 10, 15. And see, as you go through all of those different aspects of your life, like Koheleth, you can land on this place that he does in Ecclesiastes 9, 3. He says it this way. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, there's one fate for everyone. See, Koheleth landed on the place that when he thought that there should be order in the world, when he shot, thought that there should be retribution, that there should be equity, that there should be all these ideas that I have as an individual, as an autonomous person, operating independent from God and obedience to his word and his will, that I can come up with all these crazy ideas about what life is supposed to look like. And the beauty, the absolute beauty of Ecclesiastes, the challenging part of it, but the beauty of it is that it operates like a mirror in our lives. Is that we get before Ecclesiastes and God is going to say, this is the thing. This is the thing. This is the area in your life where you're falling short. This is the thing that you need to submit to. Because one, you're either going to see it in Kohelis foolishness, where he comes to the place where he says, Hevel, Hevelim. Vanity, everything is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. And he comes to a conclusion where he says, this is an evil and all that is done under the sun, there's one fate for everyone. What does it benefit me to be a person who's going to serve and love you, Lord, and do all the things that you've asked me to do if at the end of my days, and y'all have to realize they don't have the New Testament, in Old Testament times. I know that kind of seems like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But sometimes I think it's hard for us to really think that way. Koheleth doesn't have the full revelation of God. And so he's sitting there and he's thinking about these things. They don't know what the eschaton is. They don't necessarily know, what, what's the afterlife hold for me? Do we just go down to Sheol? Do we just go down to the pit and everything's dark and black? Well, you shouldn't feel that way. Because God is a living God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph. Jacob. That's a new character for you. If y'all haven't found him in your Bible, look him up. Jacob. And he comes to this place where he says there's an evil that's done. And in his flesh, he's saying that there should be equity. There should be retribution. If, if there isn't that in the world, if there isn't order and things don't work out, if when I do the formula and I balance the equation... If this isn't the byproduct of that equation, I guess I should have my equal sign on this side so y'all are looking this way, is that if it doesn't balance out and produce this, then it's like Koheleth has landed at a place where he's sitting there going, well, then maybe it's all for nothing. Maybe it's all for nothing because there's one fate for everyone. And just because it's in the Bible doesn't necessarily make it true. Do y'all get that? Just because it's in the Bible, when the Bible says, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, does that mean that it's like, well, then we should all go out and eat, drink, and be merry? It's in context, okay? Don't judge. Does that mean that we shouldn't judge? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true in the miscontext that you're using it. It means it's true that it's in the sense that it's theopneustos, that it's God-breathed, and that when you take it in the context and in the fullness of God's word, it's true. 
But sometimes you got to wrestle with it a little bit. Here's a perfect example. Ecclesiastes 10.19. Wine makes life happy. Money is the answer for everything. I was going to start with that today. I was going to make that our opening verse. I was going to put that out there, and I was just praying, Lord, it would be so awesome if we had like five or six people who, you know, we, we call seekers. If there are some seeker people who are out there that maybe y'all invited a neighbor or whatever, and they came to church the first time, and it's like we were going to do the children's sermon, and I was going to come up here, and I was going to put that up as our text, our central text verse for today. Wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. Let's pray. <laughs> And they were going to be like, yes, I love this church. I will be back next week. Because God can use anything. But that's where we land. And like I said, when we sit down with Ecclesiastes, it's like a mirror. It's going to expose the stuff in our lives that God says, you need to reel this in and you need to bring it under my authority. Who's God put in your life to be an authority for you and over you? Who has God put as an authority in your life? Your mom and your dad? Your teachers? Senators? Governors? We don't have to like them, but even scripture says that God puts all those things in place. And we sit there and we're like, it can't be that dude. Just read some of the Facebook posts that we're, we're putting out there. Right? Right? It can't be this person. It can't be that person. Because what is our expectation? It's got to work out the way that I want it to work out. Because we deserve justice and retribution. And the people that you put in these positions of authority, they've got to operate like men and women of God. And if that's the way we think about it, y'all, we are going to live in perpetual disappointment. Because adversity causes us to do what? Seek and find him, God. That's what he's trying to accomplish. Not trying. I said that the other day. He's not trying to accomplish it. It's what he's accomplishing. And here are God's expectations in contrast. There are our expectations for this life, and there's God's expectations. God's expectations... Number one, adversity. You say, well, man, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh that, you know, God is making us go through adversity. No, we're making us go through adversity. God just happened to foresee that we were going to rebel against him and that we were going to mess things up. And then he decided that in his sovereignty that in his providence, that in his omniscience and omnipotence and all those other fancy seminary words that I just threw out, that because God is awesome and he knows everything and he anticipated every step of every move of our lives, that he wove adversity into our lives and into the fabric of this broken reality so that we would fall down in worship and that we would come to him. And see, to fall down in worship means that we have to submit. It requires submission. And I see a lot of people shaking their heads. Yes, yes. But do we? Do we submit? Do we submit in every area and aspect of our lives? Or just the stuff that's comfortable for us today? Who are the people who are in authority in your lives? Are you truly submitted to them? Your parents? Your teachers? Your pastor? I don't know if I like where that guy's going with our church. I don't know if I really, I don't know if I'm going to buy into this whole thing. Well, I hate to throw, you know, biblical concepts and, and doctrine and ideas out there at you, but the reality is, is that y'all called me to be your pastor, right? And you can say, well, I wasn't in on that. I didn't get to make that vote. Well, other people were. And from what Cheryl told me, it was a unanimous decision. And they called me in and they said, you're, you're the man that we truly believe in prayer is the person who's supposed to lead our church. 
And you may have felt a different way. You may have felt like there was another candidate. But see, the reality is, is the way that things worked out is that that's not the direction that God went. And that you say, you know what, God, that I thought it should be that person, and I don't know that I'm all in on this thing, but I'm going to pray. And I'm going to say, God, because you placed that person as authority over me in my life as the pastor of this church, I'm going to submit. See, God has a judgment that's pending. And God's expectation for us is perseverance. I just want to kind of hit the pause button right there for a second. I want to make this a really awkward moment. Perseverance. Earlier when I asked, how do we respond to adversity? See, there's a lot of different ways we can respond. One of the ways that I realized I shared with Christine that when I was a lost person and I didn't know Christ, that I got to be really, really a, a technical expert in walking away from relationships. I got to be the master of walking away from relationships. If somebody offended me, if it was somebody that I'd known for a year, five years, ten years, it could even be somebody in my own family that there were periods of time where I'm like, I'm not talking to that person. I'm not going to family functions. I'm just going to walk away. And there are people that I know that I hurt in doing that. And what God says is, it's not okay. It's not okay when things don't work out the way that you want them to. For your knee-jerk reaction to be, it's like, I'm done. I'm going to get, I'm going to pick up my ball and I'm going to go home. Steadfastness, perseverance. See, that's one of the things that, one of those external signs of a saint. And when we use the word saint, one of the first churches that I ever went to, Community Bible Church in San Antonio, it's not a, it's not a Baptist church, so they're all heretics, I know. I'm kidding. That was a test to see if y'all are still awake. Is that the pastor said one day, he said, when you, you read the word saints in the Bible, or you think about like when it comes to you know, the idea that we have for saints, he goes, those are super saints. If you're redeemed in Christ, you are a saint. A hagios, a holy one. You're a saint. So if you know Christ, raise your hand. This is the interaction part. Raise your hand and say, I am a saint. And see what your expectation is. You can put your hands down. Don't make it awkward. I'm kidding. Is that, is that your expectation, we say, oh, that person thinks they're a saint. They don't think they're a saint. They know they're a saint because they've been redeemed in Christ. And they know that they're a broken sinner and they're fallen and they still make mistakes. And they're a saint. And then you pray for them. Instead of standing over there and saying, hey, uh, bud, did you see what that guy did over there? Can you believe that, man? <laughs> he calls himself a saint. Perseverance. So as we wrap this up, coming to the end here, this is kind of like the, what they call it in baseball, the seventh inning stretch. The toil of fools weary them, for they do not know how to go to the city. And y'all still may be sitting there going, what does this have to do with anything? I have no idea. I mean, some of this other stuff, yeah, okay, you know, I'm, I took some notes. But it's like, what does it really have to do with anything? The toil of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. Follow the street signs. That's exactly right. Follow the, follow the signs. Is there adversity in your life? Are you a person who your knee-jerk response is, woe me? Do you lack perseverance? See, because what Scripture says, and if this is pressing in on you, and you say, Pastor probably wrote this sermon to get back at me for something that I did, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. Because I spent this week in the Word preparing and it's before I ever had any conversation with anyone, before I met with our leadership team, before I talked to anybody about anything, had anyone in mind, is that this is the verse that God laid on my heart. And I'm going to be faithful to that and I'm going to preach it. And if you feel like it's pressing in there, then respond. Right? Isn't that what we do? 
There have been times in church where it's like I shared with Tom, I said, you know, I, I don't want us to do an invitation every week because a lot of times, to be honest, Tom, it gets awkward. Is that when I started as your pastor, I'd come down here, first couple of times I preached, and I'm standing here, and I'm, I'm standing here, and we're doing an invitation song. And I got like 60 sets of eyes of y'all looking at me. And the song's playing, and everybody's just looking at me. Yeah, it gets awkward. And so when I've stood up there and I've pled and I've said, guys, as a congregation, when you hear the word of God preached and the Holy Spirit presses in on you and there's a time of invitation like we're going to have today, respond. Not to do it to impress me. Don't do it to impress me because I'm not impressed. Do it because the Holy Spirit of God is alive and working in your heart and he says, you need to get up and you need to go down there at this altar call and you either need to get to the pastor's face and you need to say, pastor, fill in the blank. Or you need to get up here and you need to get down on your knees and on your face and you need to surrender something to God. But the reason why we do it is because it's a time to respond. It's not a time for me to stand here and look at y'all and how awkward can we possibly make this moment? And Tom told me, he said, well, that's your problem, Pastor. He didn't really say that. I'm kidding, Tom. I'm throwing him under the bus. But if he had, I would have said, you're right. Just because I don't feel comfortable standing up there, is it like, that's something that we do as a church. And we may not do it every Sunday, and I shared this last week, and then we didn't do an altar call, is that as members of this church, do y'all realize that the people who have yet to come, that they're going to learn, what's the old, uh, it's like a late 80s, early 90s commercial, when the parent catches you know, their child doing something that they're not supposed to be doing? smoking something that they're not supposed to be smoking and the, the dad says there and he looks at his son and he goes who taught you to do that and the kid lashes back and he says i learned it by watching you okay is that people are coming and they're going to look at you and they're going to go when the pastor says this and it's time to respond and nobody moves and this person standing there what i love about tanya and i'm going to put her on the spot right now is that Tanya, so many times after the service, she's like, Pastor, I just wanted to stand up. I just wanted to stand up. And I'm, she's, I don't know, how can these people be sitting during this message? Respond. If you're the only one, be Noah. Stand firm, be steadfast. Respond to what it is that God would have you do. Because maybe you're the person who's going to instruct them. The toil of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. So how do we respond? Think about those first couple of slides that I showed the kids. When everything's good, what do we do? And we throw a party. We're having a party in life. Go for it, Connor. Go, Connor. Go, Connor. But see, then when the difficulty in life comes and life starts to turn the screws down on us, and we start to say, woe's me, what's the, what's the default response that we oftentimes have? We complain, we grumble. And when we do that, where does God send us? He sends us into the wilderness to wander. That's what God does. Because it's in the wilderness, and it's in adversity, that we find him. So if you want to complain, complain away. But I'm here to tell you, you're going to end up in the wilderness and you're not fixing anything. Is our response to gossip? Is to sit there and say, you know what, at work, you know, we're going to have the water cooler talk. You know, I can't believe that, you know, so-and-so got promoted. I can't believe that so-and-so does such a horrible job and hasn't been fired yet. And, you know, I was reading and I brought this book up here and I'm going to read a little excerpt from it. This is one of the devotionals that I read, and this is by Paul David Tripp. He's a pastor and an author, and it's New Morning Mercies is the name of it. And he started off, and this is August 15th. And at the very top, and if you don't believe me, I'll be more than happy to share this with you, but when I was struggling with where am I going to land on my sermon, my buddy, Paul David Tripp, who's never met me before and wouldn't know me from Adam, spoke to me through this devotional that he wrote, and at the very top it says, don't complain to someone else, cry out to God. He'll never turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. It 
Is that our default response? And what he goes on to say, and I'm just going to read a tiny little bit, your life really is shaped by whom you cry to. If your cry is a complaint, you will find yourself with other complainers because, why? Misery loves company. If you find your default response to the adversity that you're facing in your life is to complain to other people, you're turning yourself into a gossip. And it results in hardness of heart. Some people, like me, in my flesh and in my past, what I would do is I would disengage. When conflict arises, somebody offends me, I'm like, oh, that's how they want to do it? Hmm, okay. I am a tactician and a master in my flesh. <laughs> they have no idea who they're messing with. What? Exactly, Connor. They have no idea. I'm going to disengage. I can put on a happy face. See that? That's my happy face. That's my Connor cheesy smile face. That's not dessert. So those of you that are hungry, that are ready for this to get wrapped up and to move on to lunch, it's not dessert. It's to desert, to abandon, to relinquish. Maybe that's a position. Maybe that's a title. Maybe that's a ministry. Maybe that's an area, a relationship in your life. And you say, you know what it is that I'm going to do? I'm going to disengage. And you know what? You might not even know that you're doing it. Because you, like my former self, became a master. And the New Testament tells us that our consciences become seared, that we no longer even recognize it. Or, like that little baby, that little child that's sitting there before the tombstone of maybe a parent or a friend, cry out. Why is it that in the times of our life when we're desperately dependent on God that that's the only time that we authentically, truly, really, when you woke up this morning, be honest, not with me, not out loud, not a humble brag, but when you woke up this morning, did you pray? Or did you just expect that it's like, it's Sunday, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to get my religious stuff on, we're going to do that church thing. He's not talking like a Baptist preacher of a church that was established in 1855. Y'all called me. I gave you my resume. I told you who I was. Were you broken before the Lord this morning? Were you praying that people would show up who don't know him? Did your bedspread get a little bit wet from the tears that came from your eyes? Or were you just thinking about you? Man, I really hope that guy doesn't go long. It's already 1130 and we haven't even done half of what we're supposed to yet. Did you cry out? The New Testament tells us that, I think it's Matthew 18, where Jesus, 18, 15, where Jesus tells us that if a brother sins against you, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to confront them. And I don't necessarily like that word because in our culture, I'm not saying the Bible is wrong. It's not. I'm just saying in our culture, to confront someone means, Johnny, what's up, man? What's up? I'm going to confront you. Why'd you park so close to my car? I can't even get in the door, man. That's a confrontation. And Johnny's sitting there going, man. So I put connect up here. Connect with people. Don't confront them in the sense that we think of. I'm going to walk up to Joe. Joe, what's your problem, man? Huh? What's up with you, bud? You got a problem with me? Let's take it outside, man. He's not talking like a Baptist preacher. What's his problem? Well, come confront me. No, we're going to connect. And we're going to talk to one another. And Bud's going to pull me off to the side as he did about three, four months into my ministry here. And he said, Pastor, I'd love to sit down and talk with you. And because he approached me in that way, I, can't, I, I went into that conversation with an open spirit. 
But if Bud had walked up and he'd had a pair of brass knuckles on his hand, I would have got back in my car and I would have gone home because I'm not going to mess with him. Have you all shook hands with him? He'll crush your hand like a potato chip if you wanted to. Connect. Do you have a problem with someone? Do you perceive what someone has done to you as an offense or a sin? Don't assume that you're right. It says, if your brother has sinned against you, it doesn't say when you feel like somebody hurts your feelings, confront them. It says, if, how do you know if someone sinned against you? You better open up this thing right here and you better spend some time down on your face. Your knee-jerk response better not be, I'm going to talk with you, man. You hurt my feelings. We're about to get confronted. <laughs> but I'm going to keep this pulpit between me and you because I don't want any of that. Connect. And then in the areas where God tells you that you need to submit, that's a fancy word, acquiesce. I love it. Acquiesce, yield, submit to the authorities that God has installed and placed above you. I promise we're almost done. Paul David Tripp. Your life is shaped by whom you cry to. And then, of course, I can't leave things alone. I had to put a little caveat on there. And when? See, you can cry out to God, but if you're only doing it in the situations where the stuff happens that's bad and you're sitting there before the tombstone and the bottom has fallen out and you say well that's I, I cry out to God that's who I cry to and the pastor put it up there said that it's whom you cry to it's also about when you know why we pray as a family before our meals it's not because I'm trying to impress anybody at Alfredo's or at Los Hermanos or as my wife says Los what is it Hermona's I just threw her under the bus and she waved at me. Los Hermonas. Is that we pray as a family because if things are good, this, God, this is from, this, this food that we have before us is from your bounty. It's your blessing. And I'm always going to be mindful of that. I'm not doing it because I'm a Christian and that's part of our culture and that's what we do. Is that when I pray and I say, God, thank you for this food. I mean it. See, because I don't necessarily think to pray out loud with my words all day long, but I do pray without ceasing. See, because for 33 years of my life, I spent in rebellion. And I came to know him. And I've never stopped praying ever since. Have you? Are you mindful in every moment of every day? Is the breath of God that he, that he breathed into Adam and that gave him life, is that the breath that's inside of you? That when you wake up in the morning, you go, oh, another day. Another day, Lord. Where everything that I do and everything that I think, I'm going to fall short, but I want to leverage it for your glory and for your mission. And this is our mission. It's almost, it's almost like I thought this out. Mission, pursue, win, disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for God's glory. That's our mission as a church. That's not my mission. That's our mission as a church. And as I shared last week, I said, if you're coming to a place where you know, you're wanting the rock and roll production, if you're wanting the seamless transitions in worship, that's not us. If you're wanting the orchestra pit, I can't even say an orchestra pit. If you want the orchestra pit, if you want you know, a place where you know, kids aren't crying and they're not running around and the pastor's son doesn't stand up in the middle of the service and wave and laugh and dance around a little bit, I'm just thinking you're in the wrong place. Because as Bud said, and I brought up at the beginning, is freedom of worship. I'm not saying we're going to take that so far to the side that we're going to turn into a charismatic church. If any of y'all are getting nervous, that's not where I'm going. We're not going to do any laying on of hands and people slain in the spirit and all that sort of stuff. We're not going there. But I'm saying freedom of worship. If you're standing there in your pew and you want to raise up your hand when we're singing, you would say, God, thank you. You shouldn't feel like a weirdo. You should feel like I want to raise my hand. And because I'm a child of the one true God, I'm going to do that. And if I want to get down on my knees in the middle of the pastor praying or whatever, and I want to get down on my knees up here, and I want to weep before the Lord, I'm going to do that. 
And if I need to get up in the middle of the service and go to the bathroom, I'm going to do that too. And I know it's like, y'all, look, it's like, you know, I don't know that that was really an appropriate thing to say. It is. Because we're human and we're fallen. And if what you want is seamless production, go somewhere else. We love you and we'll pray for you. And I hope you find a church that is a place that really does want to serve God. So my spin on Pastor Tripp's thing is our church is shaped by whom we, cre whom we cry to and when. Who are you crying to? Are you crying as a complainer, as a gossip, as someone who wants things your way? See, because if that's who we are, I want you to realize that it's toxic and it's going to kill our church. And we'll finish here. This is my last slide and we'll wrap up the service and I'm going to ask John to prep our... We're going to play an invitation song in just a minute, but we, I just want to ask you all to stand for a moment and let's read this together. And during the time of invitation is that, again, I'm not trying to manufacture anything. I don't want you to come forward and feel like, oh, we got to do this because now he's laid the guilt on me and if nobody goes forward, then it's going to be super awkward. I just want you to respond. Here we go. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6-7. Y'all can be seated.